see all of you in person, as it is weird to not sing when the music's going. How hard was that? Wow. But praise the Lord, he's put a song in our hearts that's irrepressible by his grace. We are continuing our study this morning in 1 Peter. Our text is 1 Peter 2, verses 18 to 25. We'll take two weeks for this text. I'm going to cover uh, 18 through 21 today and then 21 to the end next week. Let me read for us all of these verses, though, as the conclusion of 1 Peter chapter 2. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." Even though he has never met you, Peter knows two things about you. First, you always prefer freedom to bondage. And secondly, you'd always prefer prosperity to suffering. All of us. We love our freedom. We cherish choice, mobility, to be unfettered. Boys and girls, you know in your heart there's this thing that says, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. And therefore, we all may be tempted to scorn any authority restricting our desires. And you prefer prosperity to suffering. And therefore, when you may be tempted to respond to unjust suffering in sinful ways. So how are we supposed to respond to unjust suffering while at the same time enjoying our freedom? That's what Peter wants you to understand. As I said at the beginning, we'll take two weeks to unpack this. The key this morning to answer that question, how do you live free and still suffer unjustly, the key is in verse 19. Peter writes, this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. The only way to endure unjust suffering is to have your mind filled with God. A sense of his presence, 
his promises, his purposes, his provisions, his precepts. I have a bike in my shed at home in Virginia, and there's a slow leak in the front tire, so that virtually every time I go out to use it, I gotta get out the pump and reinflate that tire. My weight cannot be supported by that tire unless it is inflated with air. Your soul cannot bear the weight of unjust suffering unless your mind is inflated with God. That's what Peter is saying. And he goes on to show us this is exactly how Jesus endured his unjust suffering. Look at verse 23. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Presumably, every moment through Jesus' unjust suffering, we'll unpack it next week, Jesus is conscious of his Father. So there's no hope for any of us suffering unjustly until we are flooding our thinking with who God is and interpreting and processing everything about our circumstances with the truth of who God is, particularly the truth of God's suffering for us in Jesus Christ. So it raises this critical question. Mindful of what? What do you need to be inflating your mind with? I'll suggest three things based on the text. Number one, God set you free. I'm backtracking a few weeks back to verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a covering for evil, but living as servants of God. Flood your mind with the fact that you're free. You're now at liberty to serve God, not your sinful passions. It's one of the blessings of the gospel. Being made new in Jesus Christ, having a new passion to serve God that replaces the desire to serve ourselves. And so knowing that Jesus Christ has come, servant of all, the Son of Man came not to uh, be served, but to serve and to give his life ransom for many, having a sense that Jesus Christ has served your greatest needs for forgiveness, for cleansing, for righteousness, for perfect standing with God, having a sense how much Jesus has served you, you're at liberty to put aside your own interest and to be a servant to other people. You're free to lose everything because Jesus has gained everything for you through his imminently successful work on the cross, and in his resurrection. I think what that means practically is being free, having our minds flooded with this freedom is we're free not to hope in others, particularly how others treat us, ultimately for our welfare in this life. We're not trusting our circumstances. We're not trusting people. We're refusing to find our value, our worth, our hope, our confidence, our significance in human institutions or in people. Let me illustrate. You may have heard of the all-pro NFL lineman, Rosie Greer. She's an offensive tackle for the Los Angeles Rams in the 60s. After his career ended, he became the bodyguard for Bobby Kennedy. 
He was guarding Bobby Kennedy in 1968 when Sirhan Sirhan assassinated Bobby Kennedy. In fact, it was Rosie Greer who had his knee on Sirhan Sirhan's head as all the commotion was breaking loose. I heard Rosie Greer give a testimony years ago. And he said he had built his whole life, his whole sense of value, his whole sense of purpose on Bobby Kennedy and what Bobby Kennedy stood for. And there, it was dead. It had died right before his eyes. Everything he lived for was gone. And it drove him to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Finding his value, his purpose in the intransient one, the unchanging one in Jesus radically changed his life. So so it's no wonder the scripture says again and again, what can man do to me? God is on my side. And this kind of freedom then produces an attitude. I want what God wants. I have joyfully, I joyfully give myself over to the one who always has my best interests in mind, who has the power to supply by every need. That's freedom giving yourself in joy to Jesus Christ. So what do you need to flood your mind with, inflate your mind in order to endure unjust suffering? Understand the glory of this freedom. Secondly, you've got to know that God favors unjust suffering. Verse 19, Peter writes, this is a gracious thing, and he repeats it in verse 20. What's the idea this is a gracious thing? It sounds like he's saying, Here's what finds favor with God. Here's what pleases God. When God looks at you and he says, job well done, I'm pleased with that. The specific thing that pleases him is enduring unjust suffering. This this endears the heart of God to you. Obviously because his son did the same thing. And immediately Peter slides into a case study of masters and slaves in the ancient world. I think he probably knew there were people in his churches that didn't enjoy the full glories of Roman citizenship. They had masters, they were slaves. So he applies this freedom to them, basically saying, I know you're in a difficult employment situation, but as you bear testimony to your trust in God, your experience of God's mercy, and a desire for his glory, something happens in your ability to to suffer unjustly. Let me read again for you 18. So here's here's his case study. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. Think how hard that would be how hard that would be to hear if you had an awful master. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. What credit is it if when you sin or are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do what good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And here's the key, for to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. We'll unpack this in a minute, but Peter's not saying hope for the best. He's saying fix your heart, your mind, your attention, your drive, your affection on the example of Jesus and his unjust suffering. Again, we'll unpack that more next week. I do want to say this about the Roman institution of slavery. 
it was quite different than when we hear the word slave and master and think of slavery in colonial America, the horrendous, awful, evil enslavement of Africans and how they were abused in this country. It was different to some extent in the Roman Empire. Mistreatment of slaves could occur, but generally these slaves were well-treated and they were not only unskilled laborers, but often managers, overseers, and trained members of various professions. There was extensive legislation in the Roman government regulating the treatment of slaves. Normally they were paid for their services and could expect eventually to purchase their freedom. See how different this is. Nevertheless, their servanthood was involuntary and their legal status, their social standing, and their opportunity for advancement not the same as those who enjoyed Roman citizenship. So it wasn't a situation like today is, if you don't like the boss, you can up and get a new job. It wasn't like that. And Peter envisaged two work situations. He says, you've got, some of you have bosses that are good and gentle. Some of you have bosses that are unjust. That probably means they were being physically mistreated. There was dishonesty with pay and lousy working conditions. All things being equal, what kind of boss would you want to work for? Of course, the good, the gentle kind. And in fact, Paul says, hey, if you're an employer, you better be that boss. Just a sidebar, Colossians 4.1, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. The way God treats you, master, you better see reflected in the way you treat those who work for you. What does God want if your boss is unreasonable? Do everything in your power to undermine him, to thwart him, to offend him, if he cheats you, you cheat him back. Is that what God wants? No. Peter says, be submissive. Do what you're asked, as long as it's lawful. And do it with respect. Respect towards who God is, ultimately, as your master. Respect to the office that that master holds as one in authority. Peter says, this pleases the Lord and brings his favor when you're ill-treated in these situations. The alternative is to what? React sinfully, and Peter anticipates this, writing in verse 20, what credit is, it, is there? If you sin and are mistreated, that's not credit. That's just asking for it, as it were. Here's the point. You can't be mindful of God. You can't be inflating your mind with who God is and not know what happened to Jesus. That's why verse 21 follows immediately. Let me say it again. The only way to endure unjust suffering is to have your mind inflated with God, who God is. And specifically in that, the, 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 the centerpiece of that is the unjust suffering that Jesus endured. Now for point number three, I want to zoom out a little bit and talk about suffering in general, move on from the specific situation of unjust suffering in an employment situation. I want to talk about suffering in general. And I want to make this point. Only, only with a God who is both good and sovereign can you really make sense of your suffering. Sooner or later, you're going to be standing at a crossroads. Some of you already have. Invariably, we always, all of us will be. You're going to be standing at a crossroads in a suffering situation. It might be unjust treatment by other people. 
It might be the loss of a loved one, sickness, a trial. You're going to be suffering. You're going to be staying at a crossroads, and there will set before you, from your perspective, a number of different paths you can go down on the occasion of suffering. Let me tease a couple of these out for you. One is the path of self-pity. That is to get mad, to get angry at God, because you instinctively know if God's God, he controls all things. And so you retreat to trust yourself and you find some way to soothe your soul and you choose to have nothing to do with God. Path of self-pity. You ever been down that path? <laughs> if you've been rescued for it, th- from it, thank God. Another, another option at, at this intersection of suffering is the path of self-revenge. Oh, you're being treated unjustly? Take matters into your own hands. Don't get mad. Get even. You have an acute sense of justice? Inflict that justice on your own terms. Self-revenge. A third path, self-fulfillment. This is where you tell yourself, God wants me happy. God wants me prosperous. Suffering can't be from him. Therefore, I'm going to find easy street where I have health and wealth and all these good things from God's street. I'm going to go down that path until I get on easy street and live on easy street. Fourth path, what I'm calling the path of self-interpretation, self-interpretation. You deal honestly, reckon reasonably with the fact of suffering and evil, and you conclude in the face of that there can't be a God. And so you're an atheist. You don't believe God exists because how could God allow evil, suffering, injustice? So I want to address that. Perhaps that's where you find yourself. Perhaps you have neighbors who believe that. I think maybe all of us in some sense we teeter on the edge of that if left to ourselves. I want to address that with what feels at one level conclusions that are understandable, but I want to try to convince you that your conclusions are unwarranted. That is, because there's evil, injustice, and suffering in the world, there can't be a God. Let me try to convince you with three questions why that's an unwarranted conclusion. And here are the three questions. Can your worldview truly define injustice? So let's suppose you're the person, you're an atheist, you don't believe in God, but you are irate that people suffer, that people do evil things to one another, that tornadoes sweep through areas and destroy property, and that there's injustice in this world. You're irate. But I need to ask you this question. How do you define justice in a world where there's no God? If in your worldview all you have is matter, molecules in motion, Molecules don't give us justice. Justice, by definition, requires a lawgiver, a standard giver. Justice is about what is lawful, right, good, and true. In order to have those things, you need to have someone who's telling you what those are. Molecules never alone say what's good, true, just, and right. So in an atheistic worldview, you can't even locate what injustice is. In an atheistic worldview... Suffering, evil, of course, that's what you'd expect. It's tooth and claw. It's survival of the fittest. Right? We got here through millions of years of the chance co-location, of impersonal evolution. So, so what if there's injustice? It's, all you have is molecules. So I would say 
I don't believe your worldview can even define what justice is. Second question. Isn't this problem, the problem of evil, the problem of suffering, the problem of injustice, isn't it a problem only for the God of the Bible? Let me explain. The God of the Bible is presented to us at, as both, at the same time, good and sovereign and powerful. God is good, God is sovereign. See, if God's not sovereign, you don't have a problem. There's suffering because God can't do anything about it. If God's not good, you don't have a problem with suffering, evil, injustice, because he doesn't care about it. Only the God of the Bible says he is always good and always powerful and sovereign. That's when it, the problem is, how do you put those two together? In 1981, a best-selling book was published in America by Rabbi Harold Kushner called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Small paperback, wildly popular in our country because people suffer and they want to know what to do about it. The sad thing is the book reveals what gave, uh, what gave rise to the writing of the book was he, he lost a son. I think he was a fourth grader. And, you know, you wouldn't wish that on your worst enemy. Would you lose in your own child? So he writes a book on the problem of suffering and evil. The conclusion of the book, I tell you no lies, look at the next to last page, is this. We must forgive God for making a bad world. I mean, it's, just even saying that sentence is, feels like blasphemy on my tongue. We don't forgive God for anything. God never sins. But may I say politely, his theology is not biblical. He's a rabbi. I'm thinking, good, give me something in the Old Testament that explains this. We must forgive God for making a bad world. So in Rabbi Kushner's worldview, God's good, but he's not powerful. He can't do anything about suffering and evil. Therefore, God's off the hook. So there really isn't a problem, is there? If God isn't powerful and he's good, no problem. On, on the other hand, you could say God's sovereign, God's powerful, and if he's not good, and he chooses not to do anything about it, again, you don't have a problem. You have a problem by asserting what the Bible tells us so clearly, and that is God is good, he's always good, and God is sovereign, he's always sovereign. That's why the problem of suffering and evil is only a problem for the Bible believer. And wonder of wonders, our master Jesus suffered, was treated unjustly, was the victim of the worst evil ever propagated among man, mankind. And, and verse 21 says, here's the pattern for my followers. You can expect the same. If they treated me this way, I'm leaving you a pattern to follow. It's verse 21. You've been called for this purpose. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in the steps. I'll unpack that more next week. Here's my third question for our atheist friends who I know you hate evil, you hate injustice, you don't like the fact that there's suffering in this world, and your conclusion is therefore there can't be a God. My, third, my last question is, is your concern about suffering reasonable? Here's what I mean. On the one hand, it's not reasonable. Because if all there is in your worldview, 
molecules in motion, and human beings are just these uh, chemical machines, who cares what one bundle of chemical machines does to another bundle of chemical machines? They're just chemical machines. Why would you get so upset? And if you're a chemical machine that made up this code of ethics, what makes them inherently any better than Hitler's code of ethics? We're just a bunch of chemical machines. That doesn't seem reasonable to me. But on the other hand, your vitriol for suffering evil and injustice is very reasonable. Because the biblical worldview says you're made in the image of God. You understand right and wrong, justice and fairness by virtue of being an image bearer of God. <laughs> and so we actually share God's response to evil when we hate it. That's his response. Isn't it ironic? When you're hating evil and injustice, you're a lot more like God than you know. God made you for paradise. He didn't make you for suffering. God made you for pleasure. He didn't make you for pain. God made you for justice. He didn't make an unjust world. It's this way because of human sin and rebellion. So I understand why you hate it. So does God. You're simply revealing you're made in his image. And ironically, this charge against God that he doesn't care about it or he do something about it, this charge against God is met in the person of Jesus. God doesn't care about suffering. God suffered immeasurably in his son, Jesus Christ, in his flesh. So this is the only religion in the world, beloved, who's that says, far from God being detached from suffering, God understands it in Jesus, in Jesus' sufferings. And again, we'll look at those in detail next week. Let me close with this last point, and here's what we're trying to do. To endure unjust suffering, we need our minds inflated. Be mindful of God. What are we thinking about? God, who God is, what God tells us. Here's the last thing to inflate our minds with. God has distinct purposes in his people's suffering. So you're inflating your mind with God. Let's stay with those two things. God is sovereign. God is good. Let's keep those two things. What do we know about God as we're seeking to endure unjust suffering? God is sovereign. Earth history is God's story. It's his story. And earth history is a plan God set in motion, and he is unfolding exactly as he wills. He wills whatsoever things come to pass. And yes, it involves a boatload of human suffering and evil and sin. And God is absolutely sovereign, and God never stops being good. And therefore, you can be sure God has a providential plan for your life. Providence, wonderful Latin word, pro, before, video, to see. Providence is God's seen your life. He's numbered all of your days. He knows exactly what this afternoon looks like for you, what tomorrow looks like. He knows the moment you're going to breathe or last on this earth. He has a plan for your life. It will work out every detail. Now, I need to preach that to my weak, frail, fickle soul so that my heart finds rest in that truth, or I'm going to be a nervous, anxious wreck. I need to preach that, pound it in. It's not only a providential plan, it's a perfect plan. Nothing can thwart God's plan. He's in control. 
I was reading the newspaper one time about this Christian family that was, uh, the, the, uh, uh, a tornado blew right over their house. And they said, we're sure glad God was in control of that tornado, not the devil. God's in control of everything. It's a perfect plan. It's a purposeful plan. We heard earlier from Romans 8, we know that God, how do we know? He tells us. He's sovereign. He's good. He causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. What a promise. Is that promise yours? Have you answered the call of God to belong to Jesus? This promise doesn't apply to you if you don't know Jesus. But it's a magnificent source of confidence, peace, courage, zeal, if you belong to Jesus. So there's a call in here. Do you know Christ? Have you given your heart and your life to Christ? This is, in a sense, the, the, the echo of what Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis 50-20. You may know the story, Joseph, virtually the youngest of all these brothers, and his brothers treat him like dirt. They sell him. They turn him in. They give him over to death. Joseph, un under God's perfect providential plan, rises to rule in Egypt and has this vision to set food aside that the nation might be saved and the people of Israel might be saved. And when there's the, the come-to-the-moment time he has with his brothers, here's what he says. You meant it for evil. What they did was heinous. It was evil. Just because God's sovereign, it doesn't excuse human behavior. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. That's how God is sovereign. Human beings are absolutely responsible for what they do, and yet his purposes are worked out. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result. What a beautiful picture that God regularly saves his people by one man and him as good as dead. In this case, Joseph. In the case of our salvation, the Lord Jesus. So inflate your thinking with the truth. God is good, and God is sovereign, and then finally God is good. This is a personal plan. It's a plan for your life. I love these attestations in the Psalms that we read about, Psalm 57. I cry out to God most high. Who, who is he? The psalmist filling his mind with the truth of who God is. Who is he? To God who fulfills his purpose for me. He's working his purpose every day, every circumstance. It's good. He's sovereign. Echoed in Psalm 138.8, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for my life. When I get fretful and anxious, and I worry, I can do this. Unfortunately, that's part of the weakness of my flesh, is to be anxious and fretful. I need to get these verses inflated in my mind. Something else is going to fill your mind that may not be true. Half-truth, a lie. Don't you think the liar is trying to destroy you with filling your mind with lies? Oh, how much we need God's truth that God is good. This is a personal plan. It's an eternal plan. God is at work in your life, not just for uh, today, but, but forever. I, I, see, think about Peter for a second. The, Jesus has a resurrection breakfast with Peter and the other apostles on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus predicts Peter's death. And they sort of start walking away. And Peter turns around and he looks at the apostle John and he, he says to Jesus, what about him? 
<laughs> it's like Peter wants equal time. What is, how's he going to die? <laughs> it's just so human, isn't it? And Jesus says, don't worry about him. Don't worry about him. I got you. What about this man? No, no, no. Peter, I got you. Fill your mind with my sovereignty and my goodness. This is what happened to Paul when he did that. He wrote Romans 8, 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and man, did he suffer. Did he suffer? I consider the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared to the glory to come. So it's just impossible, as it were, as I'm filling my mind in the midst of unjust suffering, filling my mind with who God is. And I think about what Christ has done for me, his unjust suffering, and what that has purchased me for me. Yeah, I don't, the, these sufferings, they don't compare. So you see where we land, beloved. God's plan is personal, it's eternal, and it's merciful. <laughs> no matter how much I've suffered, it's not as bad as what I deserve. <laughs> We're so far better off than we deserve because of Jesus, because of his sufferings, because he took all of the sin that you've committed, all of it. He bore it in his body, he removed it, he suffered the judgment for that sin the desertion of his closest friends, the scorn, the ridicule, the beatings of his countrymen. And so there's nothing in our suffering that compares to Jesus' suffering. Nothing. Nor does anything compare to the glories he purchased for us in the next. Nothing compares. Nothing. My sin caused his suffering, right? His suffering caused my glory my safety with the Father forever. So I need to flate my mind with that. And we'll, we'll continue with this text next week. Let me pray for us. We do affirm by the word of truth and the testimony of the Holy Spirit, our God, that you are good and sovereign. We see that right there in the book of Acts. Peter preaching, you men, you nailed to the hideous cross, the Prince of Peace, God raised him up. Human beings killing God the moment they got their hands on him. God giving us life, forgiveness, grace, mercy in its place. This is staggering. Oh, Lord, we need this. We need this truth to flood our minds, to inflate our imaginations. Would that we see Jesus more clearly. And as we experience in that pattern his sufferings, Live as free men and women. Live serving others, not ourselves. Live bringing glory to the God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Therefore, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Lord, lavish such grace into our hearts. We need it. We're desperate. We're weak. We're frail. We don't want to suffer. But thank, thank, thank you that you are bigger in all of our frailty. May your grace abound. May we see the cross and be melted. May we turn from ourselves to Jesus and find 
life, our friend, our hope. In his name, amen. Let's respond singing of Christ's blood and righteousness, 520, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness.